The Old Testament reading is Psalm 19. Psalm 19. This is the word of the Lord. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man, runs his course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So in this psalm, David affirms the very same truth that we will hear the Apostle Paul affirm in our New Testament passage, and that is, uh, the law is good. The law is good. It is holy and righteous and good. And uh, we'll consider that uh, as, we, as we look at Romans chapter 7. So our New Testament reading is Romans chapter 7, uh, verses 7 through 12. We are uh, returning to our study of Paul's letter to the Romans. And uh, this afternoon we are here in chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, Sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. May the Lord bless his word to us today. I had a seminary professor uh, tell our class once, uh, and he was talking about preaching uh, in particular, Uh, but he told us what really matters is uh, not so much what you say, but what people hear you saying, and uh, this uh, I thought was a good insight, and it applies, of course, not just to preaching, but to um, everything that we uh, communicate to others. Uh, We should be aware Uh, of the way in which our words are received by others, and we should make every effort uh, to be as clear as possible so that what people hear us saying is, in fact, what we are attempting 
intending uh, to actually say. Uh, In our study so far of uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, the apostle has said many things regarding the moral law of God that could have been and no doubt were heard by some people uh, as though Paul were disparaging or denigrating uh, the law of God. Um, For example, uh, we can look at several verses in chapter three, verse 20. Uh, Paul says uh, that the law cannot justify us. Chapter 4, verse 15, the law brings wrath. Uh, The law increases sin, uh, 520. Uh, We are not under the law, but under grace, 614. We have died to the law, 74. We are released from the law, 76. And although not in his letter to the Romans, but in another place, in 2 Corinthians, Paul even went so far as to say, Uh, that the ministry of the law was a ministry of death, 2 Corinthians 3.7. Now, uh, even though uh, in Romans, Paul has also said that in his teaching, he does not uh, overthrow the law, but in fact, he upholds the law. Nevertheless, he knows that what he's saying may not be the same as what people are hearing him say. And so what some people heard Paul saying as he said these various things about the law in a kind of negative light, uh, what they heard Paul saying is this, that the law is somehow bad or harmful or even sinful. And that's the misunderstanding or perhaps uh, on the part of some, at least the the willful distortion of Paul's teaching that he addresses uh, in our passage uh, today, uh, beginning in verse seven. Uh, He says, what then shall we say that the law is sin? And having raised this question that uh, was uh, raised by others, we can be sure um, in response to Paul's teaching, uh, having raised this question, Paul responds to it in the way that we've already seen him respond uh, in Romans to an idea that he finds uh, repugnant. Uh, He says in verse seven, by no means, Uh, as the King James Version puts it, God forbid Uh, Paul vehemently, he categorically uh, rejects the idea, the notion that there is something wrong with the law, that it is somehow uh, less than good, less than holy. Uh, The very thought of such an idea fills uh, the heart of Paul with a kind of righteous revulsion. Uh, Perish the thought, he might have said. And then as we'll see as he goes on in this passage, he not only rejects the idea that the law is sinful, but he goes on to explicitly affirm that the law is good. It is holy, it is righteous, and it is good. And at the same time, as, as Paul goes through this passage, as, he, as we go through these verses, we'll see he not only affirms this fundamental truth of the goodness of the law of God, but at the same time, he also affirms another truth, and that is this, that although the law is good, it cannot make us good. The law is powerless to make us righteous. And these are the two truths that we'll consider as we look at these verses uh, today. First of all, the law is good. God's moral law, his commandments are good. But secondly, the law cannot make us good. So first, the law is good. In this passage, Paul is giving us something of a, uh, an autobiographical sketch of um, his experience uh, leading up to 
uh, his conversion to faith in Jesus Christ as a savior. And he appeals to his own experience in order to affirm uh, the basic intrinsic goodness of God's law. Uh, But Paul's experience affirms the goodness of God's law, not because Paul could look back on his life and see that he kept the law so faithfully and therefore he discovered that it was good, but quite the opposite. Paul looks back on his experience and he discovers that he broke the law. He was a lawbreaker. He was a sinner. And in that way, his experience taught him uh, the goodness, uh, the righteousness of the law of God. He says in verse 7, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. Now Paul, uh, coming as he did from a good Jewish family, uh, no doubt uh, heard the Ten Commandments from the time he was a toddler. And so from childhood, Paul would have known that the Tenth Commandment forbids coveting. He would have known that. He probably would have been able to explain that to anybody who asked him from a very young age. And so Paul always had at least an intellectual grasp, a knowledge, in that sense, of the law of God. But it was only as the Lord caused uh, the words of that commandment, you shall not covet, as the Lord caused those words to be impressed upon his heart and conscience uh, in a powerful way. Only as the 10th commandment was driven home to him, Uh, with force and power. Only then did Paul truly come to know what it is to covet, not just in an abstract theoretical way, but Paul came to know it in a personal, experiential way. And the reason why Paul came to know coveting in this firsthand way is because the sin in his heart produced in him covetousness in direct response to the law of God that prohibited covetousness. Paul explains this dynamic in verse 8. He says, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So at the very same time that Paul was beginning to feel the force of the 10th commandment, you shall not covet, at that very same time he found in his heart that there was suddenly this um, uh, sin arising within him, filling him with all kinds of covetousness in direct reaction to the law of God that says, you shall not covet. And in this way, Paul learned from personal experience what he affirms earlier in the letter to Romans, Romans 3.20, through the law comes knowledge of sin. That was certainly true for Paul. The law becomes the occasion or the means by which the sin in us springs into life, springs into action. And so through the law, we learn from sad experience the sin that indwells in our hearts. Paul goes on to further describe this relationship between our sin and the law of God. Uh, In the second half of verse 8, he says, For apart from the law, sin lies dead. And then he says in verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Now when Paul says here, Apart from the law, sin lies dead. He's not saying that until he really began to understand the law of God, he was without sin or that there was no sin in him before that. He's not saying that there is no sin in us as long as we remain ignorant of the law of God. 
But what he's saying is that as long as the, as the law of God in some sense remains outside of us, as long as we are immune or unaware uh, to the truth and the force of God's commandments, uh, the sin in our heart is there, but it is, it is inert, it is inactive, uh, it is dormant. We are still sinners, but when God's law is impressed upon our hearts, then the sin within us springs into life. When our son Sander was eight or nine years old, uh, he was very enthralled with uh, an experiment that he saw uh, online. And you're probably familiar with this experiment. Uh, You take a two liter bottle of Diet Coke and a a package of Mentos, a little round white uh, breath mint. And when you drop the Mentos into the top of the bottle of the Diet Coke, Uh, the carbonation explodes and you have this 10-foot geyser of soda uh, shooting up into the air. Uh, For you parents whose kids were not aware of that experiment until now, you can thank me later for that. (laughs) I'm sure they'll want to try it now. But the point is, just as a carbonation is always present in a bottle of soda, even when it's lying still on the shelf, So in our sinful nature, sin is always present in us. It is always all pervasive in our hearts. But it's when sin comes into the contact uh, with the law of God that it explodes. It springs into life. And and that's what Paul describes, a kind of uh, explosion of sin in his own hearts. In response to the commandment, you shall not covet. He says in verse 9, sin produced in me not just covetousness, but all kinds of covetousness. The sin within him began to rage in his heart in response to the law of God. When Paul says in verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, Paul is not saying that apart from God's law, he had some, uh, that he had true spiritual life or eternal life. But he was alive in the sense that he thought he had life. He was alive only in that very limited sense in which he didn't realize that actually he was spiritually dead. And so when Paul says in verse 9 that sin came alive and I died, he means that he died in the sense that he began to have some apprehension of the truth, that he was a sinner, that he was dead in his sins. And so Paul is describing here that spiritual dynamic, that struggle that took place in his heart before he came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. As the sin in his heart, he saw responded to the law of God by by coming to life and producing in him all kinds of covetousness. And this is a wonderful passage as we uh, consider the uh, the life of the Apostle Paul, because uh, when we read, it really fills out the picture uh, for us of his conversion to Christ, because when we read uh, of uh, Paul's conversion uh, to Christ in the book of Acts, um, we read of how Paul is, is filled with this burning zeal, uh, this hatred of the church of Christ. Uh, he is zealous to destroy the church. And then quite literally, out of the clear blue sky, uh, Christ appears to him and Paul is immediately converted. But when we read this passage, we discover that uh, Paul's conversion was not so out of the blue uh, as it appears. But for some time, there was this intense spiritual struggle uh, taking place in his heart. 
By the grace of God, as he felt the force of the law upon his conscience, he also experienced that rising up of sin within him. And he felt in his heart, he felt the sin in his heart instinctively, intensely, naturally opposing the righteousness of God's law. And so Paul, what he describes here is that he's becoming to see that that Paul, this, this proud Pharisee, that he was, just as Jesus taught about the Pharisees, Outwardly, he was beautiful, but inwardly, he was full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. Paul says in verse 11, he says, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. It's not the law that is sinful. It's not the law that deceives us or kills us, but it's sin. It's sin. That is wicked. And deceives us and kills us. And the pure evil, the utter sinfulness, is revealed to us in the way in which our hearts instinctively, because of sin, yearn to do, lead us to do the very opposite of what God wills for us to do. In verse 13, Paul speaks about this. He says, if you look at verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be, might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. You know, in our sin, we will do things that are wrong just because they are wrong. Because God forbids them. Our sin in us wants to do them. If you're familiar with the life of St. Augustine, you know that before he became a believer in Christ, as a young man, he led a very immoral life, very licentious lifestyle. But when you read his confessions, of course, he he alludes to the sort of the debauched lifestyle he led. But remarkably, he, he fixates, in a sense, on one particular sin that he committed, that uh, when we hear about it, we would tend to write off as uh, no big deal, something pretty trivial. And that is, he remembers a time when he was a boy, when he he and his friends uh, stole uh, some pears from his neighbor's pear tree. And as he reflects upon this, um, he reflects upon the reasons why he would do this. And he comes to the conclusion that he, he did it simply because it was wrong. Listen to how he he describes it. This is from Augustine's Confessions. He says, Near our vineyard there was a pear tree loaded with fruit. Though the fruit was not particularly attractive, either in color or taste, I and some other wretched youths conceived the idea of shaking the pears off this tree and carrying them away. We set out late at night and stole all the fruit that we could carry. And this was not to feed ourselves... We may have tasted a few, but then we threw the rest to the pigs. Our real pleasure was simply in doing something that was not allowed. Such was my heart, God, such was my heart, which you had pity on when it was at the very bottom of the abyss. And now let my heart tell you what it was looking for there, that I became evil for nothing, with no reason for wrongdoing except the wrongdoing itself. The evil was foul, and I loved it. I loved destroying myself. I loved my sin, not the thing for which I had committed the sin, 
but the sin itself. How base a soul, falling back from your firmament to sheer destruction, not seeking some object by shameful means, but seeking shame for itself. So Augustine is describing in his own experience the very same thing that Paul is talking about. Simply because he knew it was wrong, he did it. That was the, the, the utter sinfulness, sinful beyond measure as Paul describes it, that Augustine saw in his own heart, that Paul sees in his heart, and that by the grace of God we may see in our hearts as well. And so there's nothing wrong with the law of God. Uh, what's wrong is the sin that is in our hearts. That is the problem. The law only becomes the, the means by which sin rises up and kills us. And so uh, Paul then, he concludes this paragraph, this passage, by affirming the goodness of the law, he says in verse 12. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now, because Paul affirms this, I thought it'd be helpful to reflect upon uh, some ways in which the law is good, some ways in which the law is righteous and holy. There are ways in which God uses his laws for, uh, for purposes that are good and righteous. And theologians have spoken of the basic goodness of the law uh, by describing what is often called the three uses of the law. Uh, the first use of the law is to restrain evil in society. Now, first, this might sound, this idea that the law is used to restrain evil, this might sound like the very opposite of everything that uh, we've been reading here in Romans chapter 7. How can God's God's law uh, restrain evil when we have just read that in in Romans that, in fact, when the law of God comes into a person's heart, that person uh, reacts by breaking out into all kinds of sin and evil. Well, Paul is talking about the effect of the law on the individual heart. But when we step back and consider uh, when the law of God is applied generally to a society or to a people, um, it has a different effect. And that is, it tends to keep in check uh, the worst outward expressions of sin. And that's because when a people have some reverence for the law of God, they also have a sense of the judgment of God, of the fear of God. Now, of course, that fear of God, that sense of the judgment of God, that knowledge of God's law does not make anyone righteous. It doesn't take away sin. However, it does promote uh, civility, peace and order in a society because it deters people from crossing certain boundaries. And in our society today, we are witnessing the tragic consequence of what happens when we as a people, as a society, when we begin to abandon any sense that there is a transcendent uh, law that God has given us that governs our conduct, that sets norms, and uh, um, it gives us a sense of right and wrong. Uh, just for example, uh, before the 1960s, uh, before the sexual revolution, uh, the idea of biblical marriage and sexual purity were culturally accepted as, as good and right. And that's not to say that there wasn't sexual sin before the 60s. Of course there was. But it is to say that there was at least this upholding of the Bible's teaching on sexuality, on a marriage, and so on, as a cultural ideal, as something that people ought to at least strive for or appreciate as something that is good and right. But, of course, we've abandoned that. 
And since the sexual revolution, we have completely abandoned God's law of having any sort of legitimacy in governing our thoughts or our conduct concerning marriage and sexuality. And given that, here we are in 2024, and I don't think that anybody can say that as a result of having rejected the law of God concerning these things, that today we are a much happier, healthier, orderly, just, and peaceful society. In fact, quite the opposite. Because we have jettisoned God's law regarding these very important areas of marriage, family, sexuality, we have brought all kinds of brokenness, all kinds of misery upon ourselves. And so God's law is good in that it it fosters a kind of civil righteousness. Not that brings salvation, but that is a benefit, a blessing to everyone. Uh, The second use of the law is to reveal, so that's the first use of the law. The second use of the law is to reveal to us our sin and so to drive us to Christ for forgiveness and life. Um, You could say that in this way, the law of God is even a kind of means of grace. Uh, Just like the Apostle Paul, when he began to see just how sinful he was in response to the law of God, so you and I, by the grace of God, when we begin to appreciate the force, the depth of the law of God, we too see within ourselves that, that the, the depravity of our sin, the corruption of our hearts. And therefore, we see more clearly because of the law just how desperately, how needy we are for the grace of God in order for us to be saved. And so the law causes us to flee to Christ for salvation. And so in that way, too, the law is good because it shows us our need for the gospel. The third use of the law is for us who are Christians, uh, for, for us who have come to Christ for salvation. And that is the law shows us the way to please and honor the Lord who has saved us by his grace. You and I as sinners, we know that the Lord has been merciful to us in Christ. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve. He has forgiven our guilt He has given us new life. He has uh, clothed us with the righteousness of Christ, adopted us as his children. He has been merciful and gracious to us. How do you then respond to that? What do you do from there? Well, you keep God's commandments. That's how you show your gratitude, your love uh, to God and to Christ for this salvation. Uh, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so the law is good in that it shows us the way to serve and worship the Lord who saved us by his grace. And I want to add a fourth way in which the law is good. And that is, the law is good because it reveals to us the character of God. Now, why does Paul say that the law is holy and righteous and good? Well, because it is, but there's an even deeper reason. It is because the God who gave the law is righteous and good and holy. God, the creator, the God who sustains and upholds all things, the the true, the living God. If the Bible tells us anything about him, it is that he is holy, that he is righteous, that he is pure, that he is without the shadow of sin in any way. He is good. And his law is just the expression of, the revelation of this basic righteous and good and holy character of God. And perhaps this is why Paul in this passage, this is why perhaps he finds this idea that the law can be sinful so utterly abhorrent. Why does he recoil from that idea? It's because 
What you say about the law of God is really what you are saying about the character of God. And so the law is good because it reveals to us the goodness of God. And because the Lord Jesus Christ, because he is the son of God incarnate, because Jesus is God in in the flesh, we see in the person of Jesus this revelation of the righteousness, the holiness, the goodness of God in human form. And so Jesus has shown us what the law of God looks like, not only by virtue of who he is as God incarnate, but because he is man. Because Jesus was born under the law, because as man, he was bound to keep the law of God just as we are. And he kept it perfectly. Jesus also shows us what the law of God looks like when it is perfectly kept by a human being. And what does that law look like? It looks like love. It looks like divine love, a perfect love, a love that lays down his life for his brothers As Paul will go on to write in Romans, all the commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus perfectly kept God's commandments and he loved perfectly. And so the law is good also because it shows us the goodness of God. So the law is good. But this brings us to the second truth that Paul affirms in these verses, and that that is The law cannot make us good. The law cannot make us good. Paul says in verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Uh, The law of God does contain a promise to us that if we keep it, whoever keeps the law of God perfectly will gain eternal life by it. Uh, Leviticus 18.5 says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live. If a person does them, he shall live. And so if it were possible for anybody from the time that they were born to the time that they die to perfectly uh, within the heart and, and by his actions to perfectly conform to God's commandments to never break them at one single point ever. If that were possible, that person would receive the promise of eternal life on the basis of his keeping God's commandments. But of course, that is impossible. We know that is impossible because we are sinners. And no one keeps the law perfectly. In fact, no one even comes close to keeping the law perfectly. And not only that, but the very point that Paul is making in these verses that we've been looking at is that because of the presence and the power of sin within us, We are so far from keeping the law of God, but when we come into contact with the law of God, what do we do? The very opposite, we break it. And so for this reason, because of our sin, the law is powerless to make us good. The law cannot make us righteous. All the commandments in the world cannot make a person one bit more righteous. The law cannot save us. The law cannot give us eternal life. The law can only condemn us to eternal damnation because of our sin and breaking the law. And so what is true for Paul is true for each and every one of us. Because of our sin, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. And so we are helplessly condemned by the law of God. That is our problem as sinners. We have broken God's law. We are condemned by it. 
But if that is our problem, and if the law is good, the solution to our problem is not to get rid of the law. The solution to our problem is to deal with our sin. What we need is forgiveness. What we need is a new heart, a heart that genuinely desires to obey God's commandments. And only Jesus can do that for us. Unlike the law of God, Jesus not just promises us to give us life, but he gives us life. He gives us life. Jesus obeyed the law of God to perfection. He died the curse of death that we deserve. And by faith in Jesus Christ, all that obedience is counted as your very own righteousness. And so, yes, the law is good, but Jesus is better. He has the power. He alone has the power to save you from your sin and to give you everlasting life. Let's pray.